As John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That's just as true for us foreigners living here in the Czech Republic and in Prague. My guest today is Mark Baker, journalist, travel writer, and now author, who had the unusual request from a publisher in Brno to write a book in Czech for Czechs about the Czech Republic. Uh, hi, Mark. How are you? Hey, thanks, Derek. We're going to talk about his new book, Chas Promien, which is available in Czech right now, English version, perhaps to come in the near future. Thank you, Mark, for talking to me today, and thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Prague Times. A city is much more than just a collection of buildings. It's a location, it's a history, it's a culture, it's ideas and ideals, and a city is also, most importantly, the people in it. This is Prague Times, the podcast that takes a look at the city of Prague in the Czech Republic. With more than a thousand years of history, there's a lot to talk about. We'll talk about the past of Prague, but we'll also talk about the city as it is today, future plans for the city, and much more. It's Prague then, Prague now, and Prague later. And this is Prague Times. So, Mark, you've been here for ages, right? Uh, uh, yes, uh, you know, it depends on how you define ages, but uh, I moved to Central Europe in the mid-1980s, to Vienna in 1986, and then moved up to Prague in 1991. Right, so you've been here a long time, and you've had a variety of different jobs, and then you were approached by a publisher and asked to write about the Velvet Revolution, basically, and your experiences around that time and what was going on here and stuff for a Czech audience in Czech, though you're not a native Czech speaker. You know, the, the, the story was that uh, Albatross Media, which is the largest publisher in the Czech Republic, an editor had seen an article that I had written about the 1989 changes on my blog. And um, he liked the article and he said that um, it might be worthwhile to, to write a book. Would I be, ever be interested in writing a book for Czechs about how I viewed that period of the Velvet Revolution and the other revolutions in Eastern, Eastern and Central Europe at the time? And um, I thought about it for a little bit and decided to go for it. <laughs> Man, that's crazy. Now, how long did this take to write the whole thing? The first thing I had to do was to really figure out what I wanted to cover with this book. And the book, as Derek mentioned, the book's title is called Chas Promien. In English, it means time of changes or time of transformation. And um, obviously, the time of transformation in the book title is 1989 and all of the revolutions. But um, the publisher wanted to, and I thought about it, uh, you know, to... Um, to try to expand the time of transformation to include the years leading up to 1989 mm -hmm. and then the years in Prague and in the other capitals of Central and Eastern Europe in the 1990s, the years immediately after 1989. And to look at that in, say, one decade from, say, 1986 to 1995 or so as a time of transformation and mm -hmm. look at all aspects or many aspects of what changed. And that was basically the book. Now, in the book, you talk about, at the time, Czechoslovakia and the events uh, there, but you're also talking about other things. You're talking about stuff going on in Poland. You're talking about stuff going on in Romania, all through the lens of your own personal subjective experience. And I think it's interesting because it kind of helps recast the Czech story sort of as part of a bigger, a bigger story. 
Yes, yes, exactly. That was what I really wanted to do. The book is first and foremost about Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic uh, from the eyes of a person who, you know, witnessed the run up to the changes, the changes, and then the years immediately after, Mm -hmm. which is me. So I had to be very careful to craft the narrative in a way that, that local readers, that my readership would understand and relate to, at the same time to bring a different story than they're probably used to hearing about those events, but then also to try to position Czechoslovakia as one of several countries that underwent similar transformation in Mm. 1989 and to try to bring in the stories of the other countries to Czech and Slovak readers and, um, you know, maybe uh, to, 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 you know, it sounds condescending, I don't mean to say that, but to to help people to see their transformation as part of of a group effort in a sense, you know, Mm. something that many countries went through, several countries. It's funny, the different stories, how it fell apart. But it all fell apart very quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, September 1st, things are chugging along in its slow, not very efficient way like it always has. And Mm. a couple of months later, it's just gone. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the book is divided into 12 chapters, and each chapter takes a year. Mm. And uh, the the book actually begins with my first trip to Eastern Europe, which was a trip to the Black Sea when I was a junior abroad student in Luxembourg in 1982. So each chapter is one year, and the 1989 chapter, which, you know, talks about the changes, was really the most complicated chapter to write. It's the one that is very difficult to write in a a kind of um, temporal way, like, you know, one after, you know, Mm-hmm. events following one after another because the year was was so unpredictable mm-hmm. the year was so unforeseeable mm-hmm. you know if you really want to go back to those times in that chapter what I, I really tried to illustrate what I said in, in the previous question is to really try to look at the entire region mm-hmm. how all the changes happened so the first semi-free elections in Poland which you could say was the very first you know change there was the snipping of the barbed wire by the Hungarians and the Austrians about the same time that was the spring of 1989 and then you have a long summer where not a lot happened actually there was a big um, divide between the, the countries that, that were already reforming say Poland and Hungary and then the hardline countries like Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Romania, and Bulgaria. And then I talk about that long summer, about how people were agonizing, which way is Gorbachev going to go? Mm-hmm. You know, is he going to lean toward the, the reformers or is he going to lean toward the hardliners? It really picks up the pace in October with the protests in East Germany, with the Berlin Wall, with the Velvet Revolution, and then uh, and the fall in, Bul- in Bulgaria. And then ultimately on Christmas Day, the collapse of the Ceausescu regime and his death and his wife's death by firing squad in Romania on Christmas Day, 1989. And that's right. basically the, the, the whole year in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. You mentioned that kind of it all kind of sort of started kicking off with Poland and Hungary kind of leading the charge. Uh, you mentioned the cutting of the barbed wire. It was on TV. It was a big deal. Right. It's, it's, it's interesting when you look at Hungary today as perhaps the most conservative of the Central European countries. About Hungary's role in 1989, Hungary was the, listeners will disagree with me perhaps on this one, but Hungary was maybe the key country because mm-hmm. um, they very quietly cut the, uh, the barbed wire with Austria. This was in the spring of 1989, as I said. This right away didn't provoke much of a reaction, but slowly over that long summer, East Germans and p- some of the citizens of other countries would slowly make their way to Hungary. Now, Hungary 
is not allowing uh, those people to cross into Austria at that time. Mm. But they allowed those people to come to Hungary. You know, they couldn't stop them. And they just camped out. It was called the Hungarian Picnic. They stayed there during the summer. And then finally, I believe it was in August or perhaps it was in September when the Hungarians finally decided, okay, you can leave. And just, once get, just get out of our fields. <laughs> you can go to Austria, you can go to the West. And once the Hungarians cut the wire and let them go over, I mean, really open the border, then people started to make the calculation, huh, why do I have to go all the way to Hungary to get to the West? If I'm in East Germany, why can't I go to Czechoslovakia? It's much closer and I'll just cross through Prague. And then finally, you know, if you take the logic to its, you know, and degree why do i have to leave my country at all right you know i mean it's open right i mean the hungarians you know uh, it's open so you had this spectacle of east germans coming to prague in the fall of 1989 in september and then in october and then the last wave left in the very beginning of november just mm. before the berlin wall came down and and i write about that in the 1989 chapter it was just such a crazy phenomenon now of course the the funny and ironic <coughs> thing there is you had studied what was called eastern europe at the time and you were very interested in this region you'd had experience here and then when the events of the 1989 revolutions happened you weren't here Yes. <laughs> that's, okay. that's funny, right? Yes, 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 yes. The book gave me a, a, a good opportunity to go back and rethink everything, you know, mm -hmm. like oh, the whole thing. And part of the thing I was, you know, really at the very beginning, I tried to rethink my whole relationship to Eastern Europe. You know, after that trip to the Black Sea as an undergrad, you know, I became really interested in, in Eastern and Central and Eastern Europe or Eastern Europe. And um, I, I enrolled at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs and at their Central and East European Institute or the Eastern European Institute. I can't remember right now exactly. So I became very invested in uh, the way centrally planned economies work and the way that communist governments function or dysfunction in the Warsaw Pact, in NATO, in, in arms negotiations, the whole bit of the Cold War. And then, of course, by 1989, you know, the, you know, those regimes fall. And, you know, basically my, you know, my expensive Columbia education is, I wouldn't say worthless, but I mean, you know, um, 1989 set the clock for everyone involved in the whole thing, for the people of this uh, country, for the people of the entire region, for the people who are covering it. You know, everybody was schooled to understand and interpret a different type of government. And suddenly we had something that we had really never seen before. You know, the transformation of communism to capitalism or free markets, uh, democratically elected uh, governments, practically overnight. So we yeah. were all learning on the fly. You have a bit in the book in which you mention, after the revolutions, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Poland suddenly were no longer part of Eastern Europe. They shifted once again to where they had always historically been, which is Central Europe. I mean, obviously they hadn't physically moved, but just that mindset shift of, and now we're part of Central Europe. Because, you know, today, if you say to Czechs, you're Eastern Europeans, they'll right. say, no, we're not. That's right. Ukraine. That was the chapter on 1990. You know, I said that each of the chapters covers one year. Well, actually, 1990 gets two chapters. Mm. And uh, that surprised me even when I was laying it out because it occurred to me when I was writing the book that 1990 is a very underappreciated year. It really is a year in which could be historically more important than 1989. Mm -hmm. You know, 1989 gave us those revolutions, but 1990, you know, set the direction for what would come next. There was still the possibility, the real possibility, that one of the big geopolitical problems that had not been resolved in 1989 could come back and roll back those revolutions. The biggest one, of course, was the fact that the Soviet Union itself had not experienced a revolution in 1989. It wouldn't dissolve until 
until 1991. Mm. But there were lots of problems. You know, the European Union or the European Economic Community uh, at the time was not that interested in taking the new democracies in. Uh, there was a, a newly emerging conflict in Yugoslavia that was becoming increasingly deadly. Uh, there was the problem of what to do with a divided Germany, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. in 1990. Yeah. These two had two German states. Some of the powers at play wanted to unite Germany very quickly and, you know, get this over with. Uh, and some, particularly the, some of the Western European countries around Germany and the countries immediately to the east, like Poland and Czechoslovakia, were not that enthusiastic about a united yeah, Germany. Like, we remember the last time they were united. It didn't go so well. Right. <laughs> so, Derek, any of these things, particularly the Soviet Union thing, but any of these things could have somehow leapt out and not necessarily rolled back the revolutions of 1989, but set them on a different trajectory mm-hmm. or delayed them or changed them in some way, you know, some way. So 1990 was really, really crucial year. I'm reminded of, and again, I think you mentioned it in the book, Václav Havel, once he was president, said essentially like, hey, Czechs, don't congratulate yourselves too much because we were all to some extent complicit in our own captivity. We allowed this to happen. You know, the the the, the green grocer who puts up the right. workers' solidarity sign because the local party boss told him to, right. even though he thinks it's stupid and he doesn't believe it. But just that small act right. of compliance and obedience right. helps strengthen the totalitarian state. But in fact, the emperor has no clothes. Right. All it takes, I mean, what did they do here? All it took was six days of the country, the city and then the country, to go on strike. That was enough to destroy the communist regime here. Right. Yeah, but uh, Derek, you, that, you make a good point that um, that the emperor was wearing no clothes, and then in the end, all it took were these, not modest, uh, you know what I'm saying, but uh, nonviolent uh, ways of protest to bring the regimes down. But, you know, at the same time, you don't want to minimize the courage that it took to go out no, on the streets because when you're about to start a protest like that, you don't know how the other side is going to react. And you could have very easily wind up, you know, in a bloody right. um, insurrection. You started off the question with uh, talking about Havel and Havel's, um, the perception of Havel and the reality of Havel, perhaps, or, you mm-hmm. know, or the philosophy of Havel and the symbolic aspect of Havel, you know. And the book, it really gave me a chance to sit down and think about Václav Havel uh, mm. in, a, in a different way. And um, I was also a little bit uh, puzzled by, you know, Havel's philosophy in a sense that when he would, you know, through his philosophy would remind people that we are co-conspirators, you know, we are, uh, we are, we are somehow a party to our own totalitarian government or something, you know, which was a significant part of his own uh, philosophy of personal responsibility. And he made that very clear on his New Year's address, Mm -hmm. his first New Year's address to free Czechoslovakia on January 1st, 1990. But... I don't think the crowds that loved Havel, you know, that adored Havel, they weren't talking about Havel's philosophy at that right. time. They weren't thinking about his philosophical uh, They were like, oh, he things. doesn't mean me. He doesn't mean me. <laughs> Perhaps. They were thinking about his symbolic aspect, mm-hmm. you know. This is a, you know, an artist who has been, a playwright who has been stopped from writing what he wants to write, thinking what he wants to think. And how else could you interpret that than by an evil regime? I mean, mm. how, how, how could that be good not yeah. to allow that person to express his thoughts freely? Mm. And it was that symbolic aspect that gave Havel his juice with the masses, you know, with the people, mm. and allowed the people, the Velvet Revolution, to annihilate the communists. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it wasn't 
It wasn't even close. They vanquished the communists. They denied them any chance to come back. I have a feeling that some listeners are going to take a little bit of issue with that. You know, what I meant to say is, you know, they pushed them out of power without the chance of coming back to power. They certainly mm. didn't deprive them necessarily of their of their special position in their society. Somehow many communists, unfortunately, went on to become very successful businessmen in the new society. And, you know, <clears throat> yes, and we will not mention them by name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, um, vanquish in a sense of, of political power, not necessarily of economic right. power. They were the co-conspirators in their own downfall because they gave up. No one asked them to give up. They just went, all right, well, you know what, this is no longer worth the effort. Because they, they, they were confronted with the absolute energy of the people at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, they realized mm-hmm. that they had no alternative but to relent. Right. I really think so. After I moved to Prague in 1991, I found a job with the Prague Post, and one of the chapters is uh, deals with the year 1991, October 91 to 92. That was the one year that I worked as the business editor at the Prague Post. And um, when I was hired to be the business editor, I, I was very happy because you know I was uh, you know getting out of Vienna, I was coming up to live in one of the countries that had undergone you know the, one of the, the the revolution. I was really excited to be here, and then I thought that in that year 91 and 92 that we would be covering what amounted to be a feel-good story. Czechoslovakia was becoming, uh, you know, more democratized. It was reforming its economy very quickly, becoming more prosperous. I really thought that we would be covering a great story of national rebirth. Mm. But if you think back, 1991 and 1992, the book gave me a real opportunity to think about this, was one of the most difficult years in Czechoslovakia's history. You know, forget about the breakup of the country that happened basically in, the, in, in following the election of 1992, June 1992. Right. Um, no referendum, just, yeah, okay, let's yes, do it. You had that entire year of agonizing, should we have a national constitution? Uh, should we have a national referendum? If we have a national referendum, should we do it on a republic level? What if one republic votes to leave the union and one votes to stay? What do we do? I mean, they were paralyzed by all kinds of legal questions about how to redefine Czechoslovakia for the modern Mm -hmm. era. Plus, you had lots of very divisive issues. The country was becoming much more ideologically, you know, dispersed. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, we had emerging left wing and right wing parties. Um, we had the lustration law, which you know, was very controversial, was to keep former communists from holding positions of political and uh, societal power for a period of five years. Um, you had the voucher privatization program, which got off to a very rocky start. The country was in a very bad space mm-hmm. in 1991 and 1992. Mm-hmm. And that really gave me a chance to go back and think about that. So working on this book allowed you to look back at your own personal experiences, but also uh, look at things that you weren't personally involved in and kind of reevaluate this. And uh, so it kind of gives you this chance to to get this perspective and reevaluate, maybe almost reintegrate that past self into the present. So knowing what you know now and with this new insight, if you could go back to, let's say, 1991 Mark, what would you tell him? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> this was actually a chance for me to go back and do that that i mean first thing i would be is like okay 1991 buy an apartment in prague you know? <laughs> that would be the very first thing yes. i would do start a business but i think what i would have um told myself is to be optimistic about the future of this country you know 1991 1992 there were a lot of people hovel included 
holding his head down in shame. The country was uh, not in shame. That's too strong. But the country had uh, was breaking up. Mm. You know um, that Czechoslovak, that Masaryk dream was was becoming undone. There were a lot of potential problems on the horizon. People didn't know if the big inflation was coming yet. They didn't know mm. if big unemployment was coming yet. They didn't know what a lot of things were coming yet. So there was a lot of anxiety, and I would have told myself and everybody around me, chill out. It's going to be good. It's <laughs> right. going to work out. And you know what? What It's going to sound a little bit strange to say this. That, that idea of chill out, it's going to be all right, gave me a chance to reevaluate the role of the expat invasion in the oh. 1990s. You know, um, younger Czechs who read the book might be surprised to learn that it actually happened at all because, you know, mm. my publisher, uh, my editor, who's younger, not quite that young, but I mean, he also didn't know too much about that expat invasion in the 1990s. At the time, it, you know, we were as expats, as expatriate communities are, we were tough on ourselves, you know. Um, you know, we tended not to take ourselves very seriously, what we were doing very seriously. And over the years, you know, people look back on those days in somewhat dismissive tones. It was just a lot of fun, a lot of beer drinking, a lot, a lot of hanging out in cafes, a lot of bad poetry. Um, Ooh, but it gave me a chance to think about the role that the expat invasion played in the history of Czechoslovakia and, mm. um, and to try to assess it. And I, I came to think that because that expat wave happened just as the country was splitting, just as Havel resigned as president mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in 1992 um, for the first time, it, just as all those problems that they were dealing with, just as all that stuff. And suddenly Prague was the coolest city on earth. You know, <laughs> right. Havel was great. Everybody wanted to come here. You know, um, when Bill Clinton came here, it was, you know, just a, you know, such a celebration of youthful uh, energy and all that stuff. So it, it gave me a chance to see that expat invasion as positive, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of like reassure, you know, not reassure checks. They don't need it. But I mean, like that, you know, that, that, that this is a, a really intrin intrinsically interesting place. It's a lot of great things going on. It's a beautiful city. There's a lot of things to be optimistic about. The future is going to be good, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we're all here you know, to have fun, basically. And, and I think there is something in that, you know. I can't help but wonder if some of that dismissiveness comes from the idea that Alan Levy and then thus the Western press certainly mm -hmm. picked up this marketing line that mm -hmm. he came up with calling it the left bank of the 90s. Uh, and so everybody thought they were a writer. But the funny thing is, is that it never really manifested. Well, one of the fun things to, about the book, of course, was to go back and try to look back at the left bank of the 1990s. You know, when I told you a little bit before, you know, and, and you were right, you know, Alan Levy in his, in the very debut issue of the Post. I mean, bless him, you know. <laughs> the late Alan Levy, and he did a lot of great things, you know. I, yeah. I miss him all the time, you know. His, his, uh, his ghost still walking around the streets of Prague, I still, mm. I still feel it. In the very first, first edition of the Prague Post on October 1st, 1991, Alan wrote an introductory column that was intended to introduce the newspaper to readers. It was called Us. The point was to say, you know, we're going to be reporting on these things every week. You know, you can count on us to do this. We're going to be objective. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Instead, Alan took it in a different direction. He took it in a much higher octave, I would say. You know, it was, a, you know, an opera. He wrote, we are living in the left bank of the 1990s. And that was the expression that stuck. And that expression 
yeah, it might have captured something. It might have been, you know, rather self-serving on his part. Who knows? I mean, you know, a little bit of uh, promotion. Probably all of those. All of those things, <laughs> you know. Um, it's fun to look at yourself as living in a historic place at a historic in, in a historic moment. But that same phrase rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because yeah. it set the bar way too high up for expectations that could never be fulfilled. But, and there is a but, you know, for all the all the deniers, all the all the all the all the haters out there, there is a but. What the English language community managed to create in 1993, 94, 95, maybe starting in 1992, if you look at the totality, if you look at the magazines, if you look at the literary journals, if you look at the newspapers, if you look at the theater groups, if you look at the art galleries, if you look at the even a, a movie production company, and but particularly the literary journals, the readings, the writers' workshops, mm. all those things, it was a very viable offshore literary community for a long time. Mm. Nothing to be ashamed of. Mm-hmm. In fact, something to be proud of. Mm. You know, I mean, a lot of that stuff was pretty impressive at the time and it was done by amateurs some of it was rather amateurish naturally some of it was not and some of it was pretty good you know so um you know look i'm not going to say we had the left bank i'm not going to say we had hemingway but i am going to say that we had something yeah okay you know something something that that was interesting something that was different and something that was recognizable as a contribution of some kind you know, mm-hmm. the book is for Czech readers. You know, it's not for us to read about that, mm-hmm. you know, to tell them about this happened. But it's also to try to identify ways in which that expat invasion in subsequent invasions, you know, and through the 1990s and into the early 2000s helped to shape this country's culture in some mm. way, you know, in some small way. I don't want to exaggerate it. You know, I don't want to overstate you know, the influence, but I think, you know, it brought a little bit of a pipeline to mm. ideas to the West that they became to the West to, to, you know, to Western Europe, to the United States, to emerging ideas that came a little bit faster, brought the language, brought English, brought tourism for sure. For you know? sure. I yeah. mean, um, you know, when you could see that so many foreigners, not just Americans, but, you know, lots of English speakers and people from all around Europe and all around the world, you know, not, not necessarily English speakers, could come here and, and survive and, and, and thrive so easily, it somehow softened all those hotcheks and charkas that you see in the language, <laughs> yeah, it's true. you know, kind of ha- the softened cases. the cultural profile of the country it, uh, to be a very approachable just another European country, Belgium, mm-hmm. Germany, Italy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Czech Republic, you know, somehow. So it really, I think, really helped to bring Czech and Slovakia, you know, into the modern mainstream. You started the Globe, which was a cafe slash bookshop, which right. was, and I thought it was interesting in the book you mentioned it, it ended up, you had a certain idea of what the aesthetic would be. It ended up being very sort of San Francisco. Right. I am from San Francisco and I'm like, yeah, it totally reminded me of home right. when I went there. Now that opened in July 93. Is right. that right? Exactly. The last chapter of the book uh, involves the, um, the Globe Bookstore and Coffee House, which you said that I was one of the five original founders of the Globe. And mm-hmm. um, I think the publisher wanted me to write and include that part of it because the Globe was, you know, popular among, you know, the expat crowd here. But it also uh, developed a kind of uh, a local crowd, you know, mm-hmm. Czechs would go there because uh, it looked very different from any bookstore 
in Prague, you know, yeah. I mean, with the chairs and you could pull the books down off the shelf and you could sit down and, you know, you could have There's a, a lovely coffee. story you have in there of a Czech woman going, it's amazing. You can hold the book you in your hand. You can actually hold the books in your hand. <laughs> yeah, because many, many Czechs, many local uh, people, Czechs and Slovaks and, uh, you know, people all around uh, uh, Central and Eastern Europe at the time were more accustomed to the old system, you know, under communism, where you would go to the counter and you would ask the clerk, whether they have this book and uh, the clerk would go in the back and would pull it out and would give it to you at the at the desk. You were allowed to hold it maybe for a couple of seconds. You could look at it, but you had to determine pretty quickly whether you wanted it or not. And mm-hmm. then the person would wrap it up and give it to you. Our bookstore was very open. All the all the books we had b- both new and used books on the shelves, and um, you could um, you could browse at your leisure. You could pull a book off the shelf, uh, a new book or a used have book. Have a cup of coffee. You could have a cup of coffee. You could sit down in one of the chairs. You could actually read the book. Um, you yeah, know, I we knew were, people that did that. Yes, you could steal the book. You know, I know people <laughs> who did that too. Um, you know, so uh, but but we did that very consciously. We wanted to set a tone of you know. Relax, have fun, enjoy. You know, mm. I mean, take some of the hard edge uh, off the city, and mm. um, and and, and just, reading and is hang not out. a hurried pastime. So why should the environment yes. in which you yes. buy it be hurried? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And we tried to select books that we thought would appeal to our audiences. You know, I mean, um, you know, all kinds of things. We tried to stock Central and Eastern European writers in translation, mm-hmm. and um, and then of course on the cafe side we had the coffee drinks. Um, we had espresso-based drinks, which were still which relatively unusual. rare. Yeah. You know, many many people were still used to drinking the Turkish-style coffee, which was not really Turkish Turek. coffee. Turek. Called, yeah. Yeah, Turetsko. You know, we also put Turetsko on the menu because people, you know, particularly mm. where our, our, our cafe was located in, not in the center of Prague, you know, where the tourists are, but rather in an industrial neighborhood um, called Holoshevitz in Prague 7. Um, very nice building you know it turned out to be and it's a very nice neighborhood now one of the nicest in the city mm. but at the time you know it was uh you know relatively neglected like a lot of Prague neighborhoods were you know disrepair the building itself when we first rented the property was it, 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 it before we opened up our bookstore and coffee house there it had housed a uh, laundry service but uh, there had been no investment at all in the in building at all it was right. just uh, it was just falling down inside right 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 and the people who took to it weren't just the foreigners. Czechs also took to it. And right. again, I think little things like, hey, we'll put on Turek. Hey, we'll have Bekarovka uh-huh, sure. on the menu. Uh-huh. Something that's familiar to them. We're not trying to alienate people, for God's no, sake. No, no, you know, I mean, For God's sake. We, we, our, our intention really was, one of our partners, Marketa, is Czech-American. And, um, you know, one of her big plans with the bookstore was to, to, to internationalize it, to localize mm-hmm. it. To make it appeal to people who are in our neighborhood in Holoshevitsa, you know, who might just want to come in to get a beer to the at the cafe or or a cup of coffee, to the backpacker, you know, to the American tourist who you know just arrived at Halavni uh, Nadraji, <laughs> comes up on the on the on the metro and wants to buy a copy of a Kundera book or something like right. that, you know, or a guidebook, or a guidebook to, to you know the region or, the, or where they're heading or, next, or, yeah. or you know, rent an apartment through the bulletin board or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, so. Um, Derek, when you said we weren't just, you know, liked among the expats, it made me think of the fact that we were also ridiculed to a certain extent among the expats, you know. It got labeled as part of the left bank of the 90s phenomenon, and it got uh, ridiculed as all the institutions did back then. You know, unfairly or fairly, I mean, you know, I don't (laughs) care, but, uh, you know, we tried, we, we, you know, we tried to ignore the critics and try to, you know, do what we were doing. And, um, and, um, you know, it's funny. The Globe still exists, not in that location anymore. It's moved, you know, 
around 2000 and moved across the river to the neighborhood that's behind the National Theater. I have nothing to do with it as in terms of a business. I still support, I still love the bookstore, still like the idea of it. But uh, among Czechs of that generation, and that's why I included in the book, I wanted to tell the story of that bookstore because it survived somehow in the national consciousness among some Mm -hmm. people, Mm -hmm. particularly people who grew up here in Prague of a certain age, have very, very fond memories. And I Mm -hmm. constantly, even now, people tell me how much they really like that bookstore. But it was also writers. I mean, it is a literary endeavor, and you actually had writers. I mean, Philip Topol lived in the neighborhood who was right. a, a poet and, and singer for uh, Psy Boyazzi and his brother Joachim. I don't came. know if he lived in the neighborhood, but he certainly came there. He came there and gave reading, yeah. Yeah, and so you had you also had that, and I think then that spreads the word too among a different level of right. society. People don't realize what a flexible concept a bookstore is. Mm. You can make it into anything, mm-hmm. you know, really. And one of the things that we really wanted to do was to make it a stage for authors to come and read from their work. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what bookstores do. And um, we were lucky because Prague was so popular, at least in the early years, among visiting authors. Everybody wanted to come to this city. Yeah. And there weren't that many places for them to give readings. I mean, maybe there were, you know, but the Globe was one of them. And um, we had, you know, an amazing itinerary of readers in that very first year. You know, some of the better known Czech writers like uh, Stenjek Urbanek and Ludwig Vaculik and uh, Ivan Klima uh, came to our bookstore to read. Alan Levy came and read from his books. Um, And then, of course, we had all the English and American writers like Richard Ford. We had Julian Barnes. We had Martin Amos. We had many, many writers. Um, Ginsburg rather famously showed up for like... (laughs) <laughs> five minutes <laughs> yeah Allen Ginsberg showed up uh, we were tipped off that he was going to come and visit our, our bookstore and we were you know of course we were pretty honored to, to have him come and everything but um, the Globe was a good bookstore when you if you were looking for you know popular fiction if you're looking for books in translation by Central European writers you know we were one of the best I think um, we were terrible at poetry we had a terrible poetry not, section not a huge market not necessarily, yeah, we didn't have a huge market, but of course, Ellen Ginsberg, being a poet, went right to our poetry section, <laughs> looked at it, shook his head and said, not very impressive. And, uh, and that kind of like turned him against the globe a little bit. I don't know. It's like... So one of the structuring metaphors you use in the book is this idea of ghosts. I don't want to call the book an exorcism. That's not true, but yes. almost like a conversation with my ghosts. Yes, yes. I, I, when I sat down with the book, you know, with the task, you know, you got to write this book called The Time of Transformation. And um, it's going to be about a history of this region from your own personal experience. I needed a way into the story. Mm-hmm. I needed a way to energize myself, you know, to kind of like stimulate my mind a little bit to put a little bit of fiction into it you know Mm -hmm. so what i decided how i decided to approach it was to go back to the buildings the places the people that aren't here anymore Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. you know maybe the building is still here but it's a different building it's a different thing certainly has a different business on the ground floor and to, to 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 recognize the energy energy in that sense you know, I, I don't know if you feel it, but I do. When I look at something that mm-hmm. used to be something else and I, and I remember it in its old thing, that, that somehow 
gives me some kind of uh, energy into the into the into the subject you know Mm -hmm. and the very first time and it came to me like this yeah I, I didn't have this intention when I first sat down but I took a walk I write about it in the introduction I took a walk um through this, the the neighborhood of Vershovitsa, Prague. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, Prague. Ten. Ten. I don't know why. I was just going to take a walk, maybe because it's a hipster neighborhood. I wanted to see what's going on in this <laughs> thing, you know. So I was walking around. You, you love beards. And I, I, I like... <laughs> I like hipster neighborhoods. I mean, yeah. I, I, I like I like transformation. I like I like mm-hmm. to see how things that can be reimagined. Mm-hmm. So you know, in Vershovitz is one of these places that's being reimagined. It's kind of interesting. Mm. So I was walking around, and I was walking down one of the main boulevards there, and uh, just walking, just doing nothing. And I looked out onto the street, and I saw a building in the distance in rainbow colors, and it was like, oh, I know this building. Man, yeah. it's like wow, what you know, like it just hit a, a memory somehow. It's like. You know, was it the shape of the building? It certainly didn't have rainbow colors. And then I remembered I was inside that building in 1989, before the Velvet Revolution, under communism. It was a foreign trading company that was occupying that building called Chemipol. And the the director, one of the directors of the thing, had invited me as a journalist to introduce some of his new services. Because you were working in, in I was working Vienna in Vienna at the for time the as, for the Economist Group as a, yeah. as a reporter. And... Um, he gave me a tour of the building, and he sat down, and he gave me the whole spiel. I decided not to write about this new unit because we didn't know if it was legitimate, run by the communists, you know, blah, blah, blah. The guy was so angry with me. <laughs> he was so angry with me. He wrote me in Vienna, and he's like, I can make your trips to Prague in the future very difficult. And I You're realized... Like, what does that mean? <laughs> and I realized, oh, my God, in that very same building that's rainbow-colored in the middle of this hipster playground... I was sitting in there in a very different time, in a very dark time. Sure. So I wrote about that feeling of of experiencing that building in two different dimensions. And that mm-hmm. got me into the subject. And it really mm-hmm. helped me to focus the book a little bit, you know, on ghosts and, and memory. You know... I don't know if you remember this period, and I've asked it around, and, and people, you know, maybe it's just me, you know, who remembers this, but I, I could swear it was more of a widespread phenomenon. But when you would call the, in the very early days, say in the early 90s, when you would call the Velvet Revolution the Velvet Revolution, you know, there's a kind of innate humility among uh, Czechs. Yeah. People would say, don't make such a big deal about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. don't, yeah. that sounds so funny. You know, we call it the changes, like Zmieni, or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, the changes. The attitudes toward the Velvet Revolution have changed a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. people are much more open to the idea that it was genuine change. You know, although there's been a lot of setbacks and political setbacks for sure in, in, in more recent years, makes people wonder what really changed. But that kind of opened the door to a book like this, you know. Mm-hmm. And my publisher told me this, is that what opened the door to the book is that we're now a generation removed from the Velvet Revolution. Mm-hmm. It's 30 years ago. The students who took part in the Velvet Revolution are now in their 50s. They have adult children of their own. And now is the idea of passing on the stories of the Velvet Revolution. Mm-hmm. So um, somehow with the remove of time, we get a bit of a more clear picture. We, we can call it the Velvet Revolution with confidence. Um, you know, we're proud of it. And we can think about it in different ways, you know, how it happened. And I, I think that's where I want this book to fit into that conversation, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. to add to the understanding of what happened back then, you know, if, if it can, you know. 
That sure. Would be my yeah. So the book is available. How? How can how can we pick it up? It's in. Just be warned. It's in Czech. Yeah. And you didn't write it in Czech, no, right? You wrote no. it in English. Somebody translated. It was translated. It. Right. Yeah. But you wrote it with Czech a Czech audience in mind. Yes. Czech sensibilities. Because yes. I notice even some of the structural elements you use are very Czechy. Right. <laughs> like I'm yes. like, oh, I recognize that kind of thing from Kundera and you know other yes. Czech Yes. Yes. Exactly. You know? I, I really did. I wanted to. Uh, yeah. I wrote it in. Um, I wrote it in discrete stories, basically, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and then tried to tie, tie the stories together. Yes. Okay. The, the book is available in bookstores. It's called Chas Promien. Um, it's available nationwide in bookstores or online. The publisher is Albatross Media, Sea Press. Um, but, of course, you, you can find it in any bookstore. As Derek said, it's in Czech. Unfortunately, I'm working on the English manuscript, but I'm trying to redraft it to appeal to, uh, you know, native English uh, audiences, you know, mm-hmm. may not be completely familiar with all the details that I talk about sure, in the book. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, again, check the episode notes for links uh, about the book and to about some of the things we've talked about. And also don't forget that you can check the YouTube channel for Prog Times for a video version of this, which will have some images of the places and people that are talked about in here, as well as uh, what the cover of the book looks like. Okay. I'd like to thank you for talking to me today, Mark. Super interesting. I I found it to be a really, really interesting read, and not just because I lived through it, because obviously I didn't go to Romania and Poland, and and you did, and I still found those interesting. And so I thought it was was a really interesting book. Great, Derek. Thanks thanks for for doing this. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prague Times. If you liked this episode, be sure to like it or share it and tell your friends. Check us out on all of our social media platforms for extra goodies as well. Until next time, this has been Prog Times. <laughs>